0: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, two things you'll, uh, quick announcements before we get started. Number one, uh, you'll, you'll do well if you have a Bible and a pen and an outline. The outline should be on your chair. If you need a Bible or a pen, uh, Becca's got them. Raise your hands up. And if you do get a church Bible, we're on page 358. And, uh, secondly, uh, welcome to all the kiddos. We love having you here. I've got two of my own. Uh, if you want to keep them with you, that's awesome. If not, we have a nursery right through that door and in the back, and uh, we are happy to care for your kids. Um, well, as I said before, my name is Dan. I'm a leader here at uh, Grace Fellowship Church. And And last week, if you remember, we took a deep dive into the dark side of Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Everybody remember that? That was fun. <laughs> we learned that life is absolutely brutal under the sun, and Solomon even says it's it's like it's better if you haven't been born. That's, that's what life is like here. But we also learn that there's hope in Jesus who came under the sun with us. So if that was chapter 6, why are there six more chapters? <laughs> like why can't we just be done? Well, it's because many of you who were struggling with just pervasive health problems last week, you still have them this week. And it's because many of you who worked hard jobs and they're thankless last week, you've still got them or shoot, maybe you don't even have those. Or maybe those of you who are struggling to just believe the gospel, you're still struggling or you just have new problems. Here's what I mean. Life under the sun continues. That's why we're not done with Ecclesiastes yet. Solomon, the author, has shown us that in the first six chapters. And he asked a question that we're going to answer today. And it's not only going to clear up a bunch of stuff, it's going to help prepare us for the last six chapters. And the question is this. Is there any gain here on earth? Not just later with Jesus, now. Is there any gain now? Well, here's a short answer and it might surprise you. Yes, there is. There is gain Well, what's funny about it is it doesn't look obvious. It's unexpected. Conveniently, that's the title of the first section on your outline, which covers chapter 7. Again, that's page 358. And that section covers the first 12 verses. So we're going to first look at that gain, see what it is. And then we'll weigh that against the rest of Ecclesiastes so far. And then we'll kind of start to transition through the rest of chapter 7 to prepare us for the rest of the book, which is basically full of practical applications so that you can live wisely under the sun, no matter how hard it gets. Okay, so section number one. We've got four unexpected gains. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12, and then we're just going to dive right in. There's a ton of info, and I'm excited. All right, the four gains, verses 1 through 12. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. First, the crackling of thorns under a pot. So is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not for wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Now there's a lot of info in there. So what I've done is I lumped, I found four gains and I kind of lumped them into four categories. And I'm going to start with the smaller ones. That is what Solomon spends the least amount of time talking about. And then I'm going to move to the bigger gains, what Solomon spends the most time talking about. So these are four unexpected gains. So we're going to bounce around a little bit, but hang with me. Gain number one, you can write this down. It's a good name. And that's the first half of verse one. It's just half a verse. And it's described as better than precious ointment. Now that doesn't sound very, very unexpected, does it? Because who cares about ointment? Do you, even know, do you even know what it is well ointment at least in this uh, the biblical definition is it's a mixture of oil and spices which were very rare back then it was cosmetic there's no indoor plumbing you fill in the blanks it had medicinal value it was even used to honor the dead like you kind of You know, you would kind of put some and anoint the dead and and it was just sort of a, a luxury. And the cool thing was, is it lasted for centuries if it was preserved well. So it had tremendous value and you could pass it on to your kids. So they could have tremendous value. And here's the thing. Solomon is saying that a good name is worth more than that. I mean, think about the security that you'd love to have for you and for your kids. Solomon says a good name is better And um, isn't that radical for Solomon, the wealthiest guy ever, to admit? That's staggering. But but just take a moment and consider it. I mean, if you're honest, you can always make more money, can't you? Like, you can. Like, for some of us, it's easier. For some, it's harder. But legally, you can make more money. Go learn a new skill. Or you just go and you get more education and you pick up a new job. You can make more money. And... um, Compare that, compare that to how hard it is to have a good name. Think about how difficult that is. And I'll just simply ask this question to you to kind of drive it home so we can move on. How rare is a completely trustworthy friend? How much more valuable is that than a fat bank account? So much more valuable. So, it's unexpected, but game number two, it's verses eight and nine, is patience and it's described as better than pride and anger i'm going to start with a common scenario to help us flesh this out because i think most of us would say well of course patience is better than pride and anger so i'll start with a common scenario have you ever met a new person and been tempted to just kind of quickly categorize or stereotype them like that guy's weird that guy's a presbyterian you just kind of (laughs) dump him in a box and you don't you don't ask questions. You just kind of dump them in. That's pride, right? Like whenever we do that, it shows that we value pride. You know, what, what that says is, yeah, I know people like you. You don't really get to know the person. It's all about you thinking you know who they are. And you're usually wrong. Now, why do you do that? Why do we do that? Well, because a, a patient's response doesn't really seem valuable in the moment. Have you ever tried to just ask people lots of questions and not like interject? Just let them talk? That's hard work. That is real hard work. But what's the payoff? Instead of running from you, people actually tend to be drawn to you. Think about the patient people in your life. You just want to go to them when stuff is hard. And that's the point. It's so refreshing to see patience. But but pride and anger, they're easy and they're quick and they feel good in a moment. But patience is hard in the moment and it pays off. So the gain there again is unexpected. So let's, let's keep going. Gain number three is sadness. So we're going to go back to the second half of verse one and go through verse four. Now this one is a less obvious gain than, than I think any of them. Sadness, So it will take a little bit of work. Solomon introduces this by saying that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, this is not new. He's actually said this a lot of times in the book. It's just basically, yeah, you're finally free from this hard earth. What's shocking, though, is that here in verses 2 through 4, Solomon describes sadness and mourning as gain. That's really unexpected. What's even more shocking than that is that Solomon describes sadness and mourning as having more value than feasting, laughter, and mirth. Or I won't call it mirth, I'm going to just call it amusement. That's another word for it. But let's pause for a second because Solomon said back in chapter 5 that the best thing is for people to eat and drink and enjoy life. So... How can sadness and joy, two seemingly polar opposites, both be gain? Well, that's what we're going to answer first. And I'd like to give you a little bit of context on these verses. Solomon is talking about a funeral here. He's not talking about our death. He says the day of death is better than the day of birth. And then he starts talking about sadness. It's the death of another person. And think about when that happens. When that happens, while laughter and feasting and amusement aren't bad, they just kind of have to stop for a moment. They pause. They're good, but it's not a time for that. And to be honest, even though we're supposed to pause and mourn, a lot of times we don't see gain in that, do we? About two months ago, my grandmother died. My family was able to be with her. She was 90, so we You know, everybody saw it coming. We all took our turns and we were alone with her, spending time with her and talking to her even though she couldn't respond and then we would rejoin the group and whoever came back, it was like clockwork. We're all sitting out in the, in the, in the waiting room and somebody would be in there and they'd come out and you could just tell they were crying. It's just really obvious. But then a really weird thing happened. People felt this kind of almost need to like crack a joke. Or to like talk about some current event. It was real clear that that just had nothing to do with how people were really doing. And then the hospital, you know, we were there all day. So the hospital brings us a bunch of food. And so we're sitting there. We're trying to laugh. You know, we're trying to amuse ourselves. And we're trying to feast. But nobody could enjoy it. It just wasn't working. See, those things are good, but it just wasn't Time. And see, when sadness comes, a lot of times we think, especially as Christians, I might add, that it's our job to dodge sadness. Like, we shouldn't be sad. But consider a time when you've had to face the death of a loved one, especially when it's unexpectedly. Think about, think about the process. Now, by God's grace, you've probably thought of situations in your life, and I have, where you've had to face that head-on, and somehow through the process of sadness... You grow. You're happy again. And you know what's crazy? You're actually more happier than you were. That's what Solomon's talking about. Sadness is gain because it makes the return of happiness even better, doesn't it? You can't you can't even define happiness without the fact that sadness makes happiness look more happy. So Solomon gets that. So he goes on in verse 4. And says that wise people actually, look in verse 4, they lodge their hearts in mourning. In other words, you're just okay to go live there for a while. And here's the thing, that really helps people, doesn't it? Like if you're just okay to go there. I mean, consider the people in your life that have walked with you through the fire. Life's hard. And they come alongside you. Why did they do that? Well, they did that because they loved you, not because it was easy. They wanted you to find joy again, and so they cried with you. And since death is inevitable, do you see the great value in knowing how to mourn with people? It's a great thing. The next gain is even bigger. It's our last, it's our fourth gain. It's wisdom. I'm going to move on to verses 5 and 6 and then jump to 10 and 12, and then we'll move towards the main point of Ecclesiastes so far. First, take a moment and look at verse 5 with me. Solomon says, It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Let me illustrate that through two scenarios, okay? Let's play pretend. Scenario number one, you are globally adored by screaming fans. They don't really know you, but they just love the concept of you. You know, you're just, you're all over Facebook, you're front page news. Okay, that's scenario number one. Here's scenario number two. You are sitting in a small room being corrected by a mentor for doing something wrong again. Which scenario seems more valuable to you? Like, which one would be a good day on Facebook and which one would be a bad day? Right? (laughs) That seems like a dumb question. I mean, there's no show called American Discipleship. It's just not popular. See, we like to be liked, no matter how foolish the audience. We just want the good feeling. But Solomon says that a rebuke from a wise person is better. How is that possible? He says why in verse 6. He says, because the laughter of fools is like the crackling of thorns in a fire. I love that imagery. It makes a nice... Big noise, if you've ever chucked some junk onto a fire, it makes a nice big noise, and then it's gone. They move on. They cheer for you, then they cheer for the next guy, and you're washed up. It looks good for a moment, but in the same moment, it's gone. That's why rise wise rebuke is better. It serves a real purpose. It's hard in the moment, again, but it pushes you towards something that would seem like it would actually last more Uh so you don't run from it you don't run run from rebuke in fact go get it it's great okay let's jump to verse 10 for more unexpected gain of of wisdom this example is what i might call the benefits of avoiding nostalgia say not why were the better days former than these you know thinking it was so awesome back then but now it's just horrible you ever think that? I mean you ever just want to be a kid again? I mean, I think of that so often, like I would love for my biggest problem to be broccoli. like I would love for that to be a hard day right it's simple you don 't have to think about like world affairs. you' just broccoli and riding a bike, and that 's it. you ever think that that's incredible that's an incredibly popular belief. you see it all the time. But uh, here's the crazy thing. I could preach a whole sermon on this, but I'm just going to say this. Time moves forward, doesn't it? It moves in one fixed direction. But when you think of the past, not that it's wrong to just think of the past, when you long for the past, when you say, I want to go this way, You're basically attempting to move time in the wrong direction. And God made time. There's no gain in that. In fact, what's kind of funny is you waste time doing that. Now, wisdom looks forward, which Solomon does in the next verse, verse 11. He says, wisdom is good with an inheritance. In other words, you don't blow money on luxury. You invest it for God's glory. Again, you don't think of what feels nice and good now. You think of what will benefit later. And what's more, in verse 12, the next verse, Solomon actually says wisdom is like money. It's comparable to money in that they both offer protection. But look, wisdom actually has more gain than money because it preserves life. And all that means is you live better, not just wealthier. You can endure. You can get through the hard times. And getting through the hard times is something that money really can't buy you. Do you see the unexpected gain? Well, here's where we back up and we look at all four of these things, all four of these unexpected gains, and they're hard to accept sometimes. You know, it's easy for me to want to be famous instead of rebuked, and it's easier for me to want to be luxurious or wealthy rather than have integrity and be trusted. But, I mean, they're hard to accept, but, you know, you see the gain, right? And it does last more, right? Right? Solomon said it was better, but there's a big problem. These things only last as long as you do. I mean, sometimes they don't even last that long. Let's think about a good name. I'm just going to use a good name for an example. How fast can you lose that? I mean, especially now, especially now as connected as everybody is, you can live, you can work your whole life with integrity. You say one wrong thing while the microphone is turned on, you're done. Or you don't, but you're falsely accused. You're done. Or people just eventually forget you. See, it's better, but the big problem is still there. And I say that because we're now going to bring Ecclesiastes kind of forward towards the main point. I'm going to read verses 13 and 14. We're going to work towards the the main point. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. See, the reality is this. No matter how wisely you live, the world is still crooked. And even more in verse 14, 14, look. Psalm says, God did this. He made both prosperity and adversity so that you would actually be reminded that you're temporary. You can't make the crooked world straight. Here's what I mean. You can go try to follow all those wise principles that we just talked about, you can try to have a good name, you can try to be patient, you can try to mourn with the sad, and you can try to be wise, but eventually you die and the world stays crooked. It doesn't get better. Even Solomon, who had more resources than anyone under the sun, he couldn't do it. So he asks this, who can? who can do it who can make straight what god has made crooked now pause for a moment and refer you to don't bother turning there to luke chapter 3 verse 5 john the baptist is quoting the prophet isaiah hundreds of years have passed since solomon has died and john the baptist says this prepare the way of the lord Every valley shall be filled, every mountain made low, and the crooked shall be made straight. So in other words, who can make straight what God has made crooked? Only God. God can, and he did through Jesus. In other words, there is gain, real gain on earth, not because of anything under the sun, but because gain came to earth it came through Jesus and here's the main point of Ecclesiastes Solomon says your only joy in life is the joy that God gives you nothing else is of ultimate value and this points us to Jesus the greatest gift from God because through him the crooked can be made straight and so the application to your life is this Go and live wisely. You go live the way we just talked about. You go do the better stuff, even though it seems vain. And here's why it seems vain. Because your best efforts at wise living, they're gonna be tainted by your own sin and the sin of the world. They're just hard. You ever try to mourn with somebody and you just don't know what to do, so you just sort of stand there? It's hard. It is really hard to know what to say. But Solomon says, go live wisely. And it seems hard because even beyond the fact that it's hard, you're going to be forgotten under the sun. So you live and you die under the sun to point people somewhere else. You point them right to Jesus because that's where the hope is, not here. Do you get it? So there is gain and here is what it looks like practically we're now transitioning the rest of ecclesiastes is going to be case studies how to live what to do how do you live wisely under the sun it's possible solomon's going to give us some really good advice it's point two in your outline surprising solutions to everyday problems and there's two of them that we're going to cover this week and uh, i'm going to read verses 15 through 22 it's kind of two sort of case studies Solomon says this in verse 15, In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. But not, be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you should take hold of this and from that not withhold and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So there's two scenarios that are a little bit hidden in there. It takes a little bit of explaining. But the first scenario, the first problem is in verses 15 through 19. And the title of that problem is, There's Injustice Everywhere. So how do we deal with that on a daily basis? Well, in verse 15, Solomon hypothetically considers two men. It's not like he actually knows the two guys. He just talks about two general categories of people. One who perished in his righteousness, and two, a second person who prolonged his life in his wickedness. In other words, all he's saying is, I've seen innocent people lose, and I've seen wicked people win or prosper. He's just talking about injustice. It's everywhere. Do you see injustice on a daily basis? Sure, we could talk a whole sermon on that, but we're not. Instead, let's talk about, Solomon gives us two wrong solutions to that. Here's two wrong solutions to injustice everywhere. Two wrong responses. The first response in verse 16 is assuming innocence. So I'm going to clarify verse 16. He's not referring to someone who is overly good, like, hey, just don't be too wise. He's referring to someone who has an overly good view of themselves. Don't think you're too wise. In other words, this person would be the type of person who looks out there at all the world's problems and he says, man, I'm not. I'm, I'm glad I'm not like those guys. That's kind of the response. Not my problem. Not like those people. This thinking is how cults get started, right? Some guy looks and he says, man, the world's messed up. Hey, let's get a bunch of us over here and we'll go move off into the woods away from the sin and that never ends well, does it? The sin is everywhere. You can't get away from it. So the w- wrong response is to just try to assume you're okay and, and leave. Or here's a more common version. Here's a version hopefully I think you, can, you might be able to re- relate to in your own life. A more common version of assuming innocence is like this. It's someone who spends more time complaining about the world's problems than they do actually helping people. Like seriously, log the hours in your week. How much time did you spend complaining and how much time did you spend actually helping? Okay, the second wrong solution is in verse 17. It's not assuming innocence, it's enjoying guilt. You know, don't be a fool. Don't die before your time. What that might look like is somebody who says, well, the world is falling apart, so let's just kind of do whatever. Have you ever done this? Here's a real common version of that. It is sneaky. Have you ever entertained a sinful thought? Like you kind of, you think about, you know, you're just doing something in the evening and this kind of temptation kind of pops in your head and you you entertain it for a moment and, and you didn't act on it yet, but you say to yourself, well... I thought about it, I'm messed up, I might as well just do it. You know, can't go back now, I'm messed up, might as well roll with it. That's actually enjoying guilt. It's wrong. Solomon says it's foolish. Quite frankly, it's dying on the wrong hill. And so the right solution to both of these problems, Solomon gives us, is in verse 18. It's pretty surprising. He says, fear God and you'll come out of both of these. Here's what that would look like. First, instead of assuming innocence, all we're doing is applying what we've learned to this scenario. Instead of assuming innocence, you acknowledge and freely admit, I'm a sinner. You get up, you're just like, yep, today, I'm going to sin. Like, it's in me, it's all over the place, I'm going to respond wrongly to it, I'm going to think it. But, instead of enjoying guilt... You seek to live wisely and humbly like Jesus out of gratitude to him. Here's what I mean. When you assume innocence and you acknowledge that you're a sinner, you're actually fearing God because you're admitting the fact that you need him. You say, I messed up. I need help. And then instead of enjoying guilt and saying, well, I can't, you say, oh, man, Jesus died for that. You seek to live wisely and humbly like Jesus out of gratitude to him. You're fearing God because you have reverence for God's holiness, which is what drove Jesus to the cross. Does that make sense? It actually gives you hope so that you can admit sin, but yet not just wallow in it. And see, when you do this, Solomon says you live wisely. And to be honest, doesn't that drive the world nuts? Like when you live, when you don't act on your initial, you know, when you don't follow your heart, when you don't just kind of go with it. It's so strange to the world. They say, why are you helping me? I haven't done anything to earn that. Or, why do you care? You know, you live in the suburbs, I live in the city. Why do you care about me? And then you say, because my hope is in Jesus. You know, and when you do that, as flawed as your efforts are, if you can just imagine, it's like you have a skinny little crooked finger, and it's really not good for a whole lot, but it's pointed straight to heaven. Because that's where the hope is. Because it's not crooked there. Okay, here's problem number two. It's verses 20 and 21. It's a whole different problem. It's handling disrespectful subordinates. I love the word subordinates. <laughs> just means this. What do you do when, on a daily basis, when people under you are disrespectful to you? You know, what do you do? You know, you're just out there and you're, you know, parents, your children just you know, talk back. You're like, oh my goodness, I bought you so much stuff and I've given you so much time. And you know, they talk back. Supervisors, jokes are made at your expense. Kind of find out, man, these guys really don't respect me. What do you do with that? Here's a surprising solution that Solomon suggests. He says, remember your sin. Now that is staggering. Verse 22 says, why? Your heart knows how many times you have cursed others. Now, let me clarify. Solomon does not say this. He doesn't say, hey, you're a sinner, So what right do you have disciplining other people? Let the kids run wild because nobody's innocent. Solomon does not say that. What he says is, you first look at your own sin when you are wronged. You examine yourself. So when you feel that rush of temptation to hit or to yell or to just get bitter because it feels good in the moment, you pause and you think of your sins. And when you do that, when you start thinking about all the times you've cursed other people, and you start with like the, you know, like the, the parking mate, like, like the parking meter person, you know, like the lowest rung or like the Arby's worker, you know, and you work your way up. You work your way all the way up, and you reach the top, you think about all the times you've cursed God. Think about all the times that God said do something and you said, no, I don't like you. And with that, though you still discipline disobedience, you don't ignore that. You now do it lovingly and not in pride and anger. So you recognize the fact that you have a problem, but you don't avoid your responsibility. It's really the same solution as the last problem. It's just applied to a different problem. Do you see the hope of that in the midst of a fallen world? Because you're going to get sinned against and you're going to sin a ton of times before you're out of here. But you can forgive the sin of others no matter how hard it gets because you know how sinful you are. You know what you've been rescued from. And here's the cool thing as we start to work toward the last session. What's so great about this chapter is right after giving us this rich counsel, Solomon takes his own medicine. It's point three. It's the last seven verses. It's kind of a closing reminder, sort of a meditation. Solomon says this in verse 23, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I'll be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I found something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now, in verse 23 and 24, Solomon says, I've looked everywhere. Who can find wisdom? It's hard. It's far from me. It's not in me. It's not under the sun. And he continues through 26. When I did search, here's what I found. I found more sin. And what's amazing is that Solomon here uses the metaphor of a woman, but please don't misunderstand What Solomon is referring to is actually his own failings, not the failing of a particular gender. Because God, way back in the book of Deuteronomy, called the kings of Israel, he said, don't stockpile wealth, don't stockpile wives. He gave that in the law. What did Solomon do? He broke that. He amassed wealth. We've already read. He amassed 700 wives and 300 concubines. Why did he do that? Well, why do you break God's law? Because it feels good in the moment. You don't think about the long-term implications. Solomon figured that out because in verses 27 and 28, he says, I found one man among a thousand, but not a wise woman. Now again, let me clarify before you throw rocks at me. When Solomon is talking about a thousand women, he's referring to his wife's wives and concubines. I'm sure they look good, but not one of them was wise. It's like if you marry someone only based on physical attraction and you never get to know them. The marriage is going to crumble. You're not going to find the wisdom and the hope that you were looking for. And if you do that, like if you marry one person for the wrong reasons and you don't see that wisdom, say that's one step in the wrong direction. Solomon went a thousand steps in the wrong direction. So this statement is actually a lament. Do you see that? It's a confession. I didn't find it. I sought out what my heart wanted and nothing good came of it. Solomon is just applying the scenarios we talked about to his own life. He's looking inward. He's blaming himself. And the one man in a thousand just means this. And we know this. Wise people are hard to find. Just like we read earlier, Solomon had luxury, but he didn't have many trusted friends. Sin left him empty. Sin will leave you empty. And that takes us right to the last verse. God made man upright, but man sought out many schemes. How about you? You've sought out some schemes, haven't you? God didn't make you that way. You did that. This harsh world under the sun, it's just the consequence of that. And so what's what's our ultimate hope in the midst of that? It's not that you find one wise person in a thousand because Solomon was rich and he couldn't do it. Because to be honest, you might not find many wise people in your life. It's not even that you find one wise person among a million because you might not do that either. Your hope, our hope, is that one wise person, the wisest of them all, found us. He came under the sun to do it. And because of that, our lives, vain as they are, can be filled with hope for the future. But as we learn today, that's actually not all. We don't just get to live a little bit better here on earth, even though it's still hard. Though the gain is unexpected and it's temporary, it points to Jesus, and Jesus is not temporary. So living wisely under the sun, vain as it seems, is a taste of eternity with Jesus. We don't deserve that, but he's given it graciously to us. Let's work out of that. Let's pray for Dear God, the world is a is a really hard place. The hardest thing about living wisely is the fact that knowing that someday I'm going to die and nobody might notice it, but God's written our name down. Even if our good name is spoiled, our names are written in the book of life. Even if we falter in wisdom, we follow Christ who did not falter in wisdom. Even if we're impatient, God deals patiently with us. Lord we thank you for that we ask that you would help us to